Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There is one. I scored for the under-21s, and I genuinely don't remember it. Like I've got, there's a picture in the middle of the book from when I scored in the semi-final yeah. for England. I have no idea what happened. The thing I remember the most from it, yeah. from that game, was the fact that we went to penalties. And I was concerned I'd have to take one. Yeah. And the fate of the universe on my shoulders was not what you want when it's a penalty shootout. <laughs> Getting it back off Halper. Now Morrison. Carroll. And Welcome to the Book Club on Football Ramble Presents. I'm Kate Mason. I'm Jim Campbell. And today we're joined by one of the most thoughtful new voices in the game. A recently retired defender with an eye for a goal whose career bridged the old Manchester City and the new. A City fan who was brought up a few minutes away from where the Etihad would be built just over a decade later. The son of an engineer dad and a microbiologist mum with a doctorate. Nedim Anurha was always expected to excel academically and his brilliance as a footballer was never going to stop him from taking education seriously, making him one of the very few male elite footballers who can boast straight A's at A-level. Not that Nedham finds showing off natural. This is wild. After the match, Zlatan goes into the RSL locker room, apparently to apologise to Nedham for his antics during the game. But as you can see, Nedham isn't having it. All right, our final he sends Zlatan out. This is a guy who's the face of the MLS, as he calls himself, but this is the way that he plays on the field. So I don't care if someone comes in and tries to say that to me. You don't say that on the field. I don't care. I'm not going to I'm not going to accept his apology. It's unacceptable. The story he's been able to tell about the world of football in his book, Kicking Back, is intriguing and nuanced. In over 400 club games in England and the States, he's worked with everyone from Neil Warnock to Roberto Mancini. And best of all, he's happy to be honest about what that's really like. Mate, more up than away. And it's buried by Nedamanua. Well, West Bromwich Albion protests begin, but Manchester City have doubled their lead on 20 minutes. Nedim, thank you so much for joining us for Book Club. I can't believe you've called me a defender with an eye for a goal. Like, that's one <laughs> thing that sort of paid me throughout my career, the stress of not scoring enough every season. Really? So, yeah, massively, massively. It's like, it's really disappointing when you don't score, even though it's not part of, like, your game. Yeah, like I've had a ton of chances and I've, had, I've come so close and it seems such a simple thing to do. Yet still, I've been kind of incapable of doing it for lots of years. Was it 18 you got? I think it was about that, yeah. That's, but a, that's not a bad return for a defender, is well, it? Well, 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 well. Depends how many set pieces you got for every season. <laughs> yeah. You know, it depends how often the ball drops to you. So um, I'll take it because more than a lot of people I know, but it's still a long way behind some other people that I know as well. 
Yeah. There's a really cute um, intro at the start of the book uh, with Micah Richards and Joe Hart. And Micah says that you, or in fact, you talk about it as well, that you were a striker when you were a kid. Yes, that's right. But he then sl- absolutely slates your technique. But if that's, is this Micah saying this or Joe? Because I think the, it was Micah. Micah. Micah's got no leg to stand on. Like <laughs> he's a literal disaster when it comes to scoring goals. So I'll, I'll take it from Joe, who basically lived in my head when we used to do shooting practice at City. <laughs> but Micah cannot say a word. If anyone's got anything to say about that, just have a search of his penalty in a preseason game. Right. It's probably it's like it's gone over the post in rugby, like comfortably over. You're having to check a video replay to see if it actually went through. That's how high it went. So he cannot say a word to me about any of that. Interesting, interesting <laughs> decision, isn't it? I thought, Jim, to um, get these two guys to just have a free fall as the intro for your book. Yeah. Was, that, was that your? How did you come up? Was well, that something you did with with your co-writer? Yeah, it was. Yeah. So shout to Hugh Ferris for that, and they. Those two know Q as well. And I think those two people know me well, so they can give like an honest depiction of who I am as a person, mm. but in a slightly different way, because the book itself, you know, from a footballer standpoint, mm. it's not really a traditional one as such, and it does have its sort of uh, quirks to it. So why not start with something like that with some familiar faces? Mm. And as I say, they, they know me for a very, very long time. They know my intent. They know my ups, they know my downs, but then they also would do anything in the world for me. So, you know, that's a real privileged position to be in. And I think they did a very good job, to be fair. It really comes through, actually, the warmth there, which yeah. I suppose is why Micah feels comfortable slating your technique. Yeah. In an right, intro yeah. that's meant to yeah. praise you. I know. I know. You call me boring as well. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> what do you want to read in the first few pages of a book about yourself to read how boring you are? So this is good then, yeah? This is going to just be an encyclopedia or something. Let's just read through that for fun. But those... I'd say 99% of the people I played with are quite fond of me. So I think come the end of the book, you'll sort of sense why that is. But those two are fantastic. And yeah, I was very happy to have them on board. Yeah, there's a real sense of, sense of warmth, I think, when you're talking about a lot of the people you've played with and uh, people who've been important to you in your career and of course your family as well. I mean, it, the Kicking Back covers the story of your of your playing career really mm. right up to the point where you, where you retired. Um, but it's also the story really of you finding your voice and in yes. some cases reassessing yes. things that have happened in your career. Is there does there is there one thing that stands out that you would have liked to have done differently? Um Yeah. There's, there's probably more than one thing to be honest. But when it comes down to what I would choose, it wouldn't necessarily be something that would maybe have advanced my career. Mm. Because you know, if I would have, say, listened a bit more or paid more attention to certain things or understood what managers were like, like, I would maybe would have lost the experiences that I've had. And I love them. Like, I love spending time in London. I love going to the USA. And those moments came from decisions that I made when I was younger. And I think, and I feel like I'm a good person now. So, you know, I can deal with that. But it's more so the things like within the book, the issue with the emails sent to my mom, which mm. were um, basically making lighthearted jokes about her health situation because in hindsight you know I didn't know that her diagnosis was terminal so I wonder how I'd feel if I received something like that and if I knew that was the case like to to this day today I would fight that battle for people for other people not just myself so to then go back to that time and think in my mind that I had to be respectful because essentially I didn't have leverage at the club and things like Mm. that and I was concerned like that completely misses the point. And I think there are a few instances of that, whether it was even, say, when I didn't get go to play for Nigeria one time because I was concerned with my situation with City because I wanted to stay. I never had plans to leave. And I thought, well, if I go away, it will negatively affect my club situation. Like, you got to think bigger than that. Because just this uh, February, I was speaking, I was doing the AFCON coverage with Main Genus. 
and we were looking at some of the news articles which were sort of downplaying the the importance of the confederation championship for a continent whilst at the same time once the, when the tournament's going on you're seeing different versions of Salah and Mane because this is their happiest versions because they're representing their country so then for me to think like that then I just want to try and play for City it just completely misses the point and now I've retired I've not got any caps to my name and you know I'm a bit sad about that to a certain extent but maybe the outcome would have been the same but the working would have been different you know in terms of explaining and trying to figure out what I needed to do so they're, they're just the name but two things but there's tons of stuff in there and I think ultimately you know I am where I am today because of those decisions and the consequences that came off the back of it and sort of being able to take it and understand why it was good bad or indifferent that's the real benefit of the book as well I suppose is you know it's much easier to sit back at this stage yeah. when you've achieved what you have and and you've come to the end of your career and say I could have handled that differently. Yeah. But of course, when you were playing for City, you know, you were so invested in that club. 100%, yeah. So I don't know that you, even if you had slightly different information, just having read it, I don't know that you necessarily could have made that decision. I think what would have helped, and this is going to sound so like egotistical or whatever, is someone like me today supporting me back then. Yeah. You know, like a senior pro or somebody who actually has your best interests at heart. But that time for City... Just, just around the takeover. It was like a really weird time for a lot of people because nobody was really established enough with the new management and the new ownership to be able to sort of have the leverage to say, we're going to stick up for the collective. Yeah, Everyone was basically in a new situation. And, and even after that, when Mancini came in, like nobody, there was no one that was guaranteed to be playing. And that's a weird place to be at a football club because even though everyone's a player, you do have this sort of hierarchy whereby this is the main person this is the next tier mm. and this is everybody else so all of a sudden when you've got a team made up of everybody else it's kind of leaves you in a position where you, you root for yourself and also within football as you guys know like it's just excessively macho you can't back then you can't see you're not going to be seeking help from someone coming over and tapping you you're your, one of your teammates inside oh could you help me with this please i'm struggling what do you think i should do like yeah, you, you, you sort of fight your own battles essentially. There's a real sense of that coming through actually that, that there is a reluctance to, mm. to speak and to actually just speak openly and honestly and for people to be able to sit down and go okay look perhaps um, this could be done differently or I, I don't understand why this is working. A really good example is you talk about the moment you, you talk about that you meet Roberto Mancini mm. um, and he essentially asks you when, he, when you'd be fit you not unreasonably joked that the physio could say it with more authority than you and he reacted really badly to yeah. it. It seems like a real sliding doors moment. Yeah. And also reading the book thinking, you know, could you've sat could you've had a conversation with him in the dressing room or, or, or had a you know had a sort of like heart to heart to explain that. But it the the impression comes through that, that that's impossible in football yeah. because it's there are too many walls up everywhere and yeah. even players in favour don't feel comfortable doing that. Yeah, that, I think I think that is true. I think over the years it's probably changed a little bit, but that that was a looking back. There's no guarantee that you would have liked me or played me, but in time you realised how much he hated people that were injured, like mm. with a passion. Heard this about Mourinho as well. It's a weird is thing it? that that like I barely speaks to injured players. Yeah, with well, so with Mancini, basic, no? honestly, <laughs> but like right? Roberto Mancini for as good as he was as a coach in terms of setting up a side to play in a certain way, and I promise you, it was good because to this day, like I play five sides on a Wednesday, and I'm still doing things in the five side which he taught me twelve years ago. <laughs> like he's corrupted my brain, but like you're not, you've not got qualification in medicine. You've not been working as a physio for twenty years. So when you walk into the treatment room. That's not your domain. Mm. Yet still, he sort of carried himself as if it was. And he applied a lot of pressure to the physios, to the players, 
because now you could, everyone again like I said nobody was on like a stable footing at this point I think City a couple of years after they changed it so that the staff were like contracted to the City football group as opposed to the playing side right. but at that time that wasn't the case so the pressure's on for those people because it was just in a traditional environment whereby if a manager doesn't like it they can sack anybody they want within the organisation so when a guy comes in and you know the physio sees you and says you know this is a four week injury the manager comes in and says no it's a two before you know it, how do you reckon those two weeks going to go where he's expecting you back? He's yeah. Gonna, he's going to hold it against you and against the medical staff. But that's just based on somebody who doesn't really know much about injuries. So yeah, the, that's a sliding doors moment. And just the way football is, there's, it's, to be fair, it's probably the same as most workplaces though. You know what I mean? Like, I am actually e- thinking that. Everything, the, everything the appears charge, the same. Yeah. Everything yeah. appears the same. Like everyone's the same. And you know, you just go and speak. You just, oh, come knock on my door whenever. You can knock on the door. It doesn't mean someone's going to answer. Know, that, <laughs> yeah. That's the irony. Yeah, <laughs> My door's always open. I'm somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I think that is a really interesting point in the specific context of football because, of course, one of the in fact one of the things I mentioned in this in the intro is, is the point is that you are more ed- better educated, as in you followed the path mm. of education quite a lot further than most of your peers and probably most of the people working certainly in men's football is slightly different in women's football because of course there's not so much money in it so people have to think about what they might get up to if they had to have another career afterwards but it seems almost like at certain points in the book that your intelligence which could have been helpful in many contexts was almost seen as as a negative sometimes um because you're asking these questions yeah i think sometimes but then also that sort of thing makes you different in the group mm. and different in a group is not always a strength like I, when I was at QPR there was a player who'd been to university come up through the leagues and we signed him and he never really fit in because a lot of people within the group said he was too normal like too normal too normal just like, that's a hard criticism to take isn't it <laughs> and how do you rea- how do you react to that like what do you do but he came in he might wear the same shoes for three days in a row. He might wear the same jeans for two days in a row. And then the jeans and stuff were coming from like Topshop and all this yeah. stuff. So he was basically, he looked like a 22, 23 year old male does after they finished university. Yeah. Because that's what he was, right? Exactly that. But he was also playing in the championship in a place where people were spending most of their money on like Balenciaga shoes and all this stuff. So he was too normal. And it, it broke my brain that one because I was watching it happen. I was like, is this where we're at? Like, somebody's too normal to fit in this group and the only way he's going to fit in is if he starts acting up to the stereotype. Yeah. It sounds like school, but <laughs> yeah. like, it never ends. Yeah, literally, it just goes on forever. And I, I think that's um, that's the way that football is. I think at times it, it's a brilliant game. Being involved in a team and being successful, getting the chance to play with people end up being your friends is, and being paid to play football is incredible. But then there's certain things that go on, we'll call it football politics and the like, which just don't make sense because it's essentially like a group of people all following along with something, but nobody's leading it. So when something sorts of goes wrong, like how do you address it when there's nothing at the forefront of it, if you know what I mean? This is what, one of the really interesting things about the book. We, we were talking early on, a lot of a lot of footballers' books. So this happened and then this happened yeah. and then this happened. But you, you really, you're at pains to sort of give a proper explanation of what it's like mentally mm. to be a footballer and the, the emotional journey that you go on through these yep. through these kind of um, experiences. Was that a deliberate choice? Yeah. I, like, so I've, I've been doing certain bits of media for the last 18 months now and I was making sure, because I did a little bit before I retired, but I was making sure that what I say represents what football actually is as opposed to the way that 
you know, can be depicted from the outside because you've got maybe four or five gatekeepers who will tell everybody that it's the same up and down the country according to their experiences. Like, prime example, I've I've had managers who give you tactics for a game on a Saturday which you know aren't going to work, but you work hard at them from Monday through Friday and then try and do it on a Saturday. Mm. Lo and behold, it doesn't work. But you've been a good teammate and a good player because you've tried to do what the manager told you to do, which is the whole hierarchy within a football club. But then come Saturday night, you're being blasted as players for being not good enough. Mm. And like people forget the reason people are doing what they're doing on Saturday is because they've been told to do it. But then if somebody then decides to go off and do their own thing, they're perceived as a hero sometimes. But that's actually somebody being a bad teammate. Um, So the honesty, football, it is a great sport. But say, before I went to Queen's Park Rangers, I used to sort of drink the Kool-Aid that was always available on TV and see lots of people get angry every time they saw somebody celebrate when they finished 17th. I was like, look at this, pathetic. You know what I mean? Got no ambition, no drive, no this. The next thing, transfer me to a team that's down there is losing every week and it's not about finishing 17th because you don't get a badge that says you finished 17th you get a Premier League badge on your shoulder for the next season you've guaranteed that you'll play at the highest level once again with the opportunity to be better next season with the opportunity for everybody to keep their jobs to keep their salaries yes like it's far bigger than the 17th but the person, lo and behold, the person saying it has probably never finished outside of the top three or top four. Mm. You know, yeah. so there's a level of honesty which needs to be expressed. Not everybody will care because they do obsess about success, but success is relative. I think that's a really good point. And I think your your assessment of football and the way it pieces together and your experience of it. And for example, being honest about how you didn't want to drop down from the Premier League, but yeah. then, you know, you were signed by QPR and, and as it, as that's it goes, played, yeah. yeah, that's that's what it turned. And you, of course, were captain for the club. I mean, how did how did you feel? Because uh, you've talked already about people, this this normal guy being mm. semi ostracised in the yeah. dressing room. How did you feel about the influence you were able to have there at Queens Park Rangers? Mm. Um, it was far greater in the last three years when I was captain because the squad was changing and I was becoming one of the not just senior players because I've been there for three years. I was there for six and a half years. So I didn't. I wasn't senior because I'd been there for the time. I was senior as well because I was a bit older and I spent a lot of years playing in the Premier League and the like. I think at, at that point, this was must have been 2015. Uh, yeah, at the start of the 2015 season, I'd been playing for 11 years, and the squad was changing. They were recruiting younger players, and they were starting to recruit players from lower down in the football pyramid as well. So my experiences meant a lot, and people listen to what I was saying should I have anything to say but there was a big thing because I got it felt really proud to be selected by Chris Ramsey the manager at the time to lead this next generation because I'd always been somebody because I'd, of what I'd been through I understood the importance of like being heard and being understood and being asked about so they were, so then when I when I did take that on board like I was a significant part in terms of setting the culture at the club mm. for those three years and I loved it because it meant that some of the poisonous things which were there before, I wasn't really going to stand for now because I had a I had a bigger voice, I had a louder voice and people trusted me. And it wasn't just like the management that trusted me, it was the players as well. And I was really happy because I remember at times thinking like, I wish I had this when I was younger. Like when this, I've had some captains, for example, who say that the team want this or the team want that, but that's what they want. But you, you'd be none the wiser 
because they do things behind people's backs. You know, they they they're performative captains. They do it for the armband and for the picture. And to be to say that that's who they are. But for me, it was never about me. It was about everybody else. Because I thought if we have true harmony within the group, then whatever success turns out to be, we can still enjoy being on a journey together. You know, because at the end of the day, as I said before, not every team can finish top of the like finish near the top or be near the top. But you can still have a successful season based on what you have. Um, so me, as I say, being captain, and then those final two and a half years in the USA as well, I was able to make the most of my experiences, make the most of my voice, make the most of understanding how a football club works. Because there are lots of people within football who somehow think like their boots just arrive in their locker every day as by the little boot elves or something like that. <laughs> you know, but I know it's the kit man. I don't know the kit man's been in from this time, has been doing this, has been doing that. Like all of a sudden you somehow miraculously have tickets or you miraculously have this or you have that. Like football's such an amazing sport. You walk through the door and like, poof, <laughs> everything's done, everything's there. But I understood it. So I brought everybody on board. And as a consequence, like when you came in, it was it was less work and more like a place that you wanted to be, which I think not everyone gets the pleasure of doing. Is part of that generation, or do you think you talk in the book about yourself and Stephen Island being mm. on eighty pounds a week yeah, when you were big money in, back in, then? You know, yeah, right. But that's the sort of money you associate with, like kind of seventies or eighties football. Yeah. I was absolutely astonished to to. Learn. I remember it being in the press a few years ago as well that that's what the yeah. city youth youth players were on at that time. Yeah. Um, so the eighty pounds a week, it's to put it into context, it's not a lot of money, but it's an incredible amount of money when previously you were making nothing. Yeah. Mm. Like you think you've got all the freedom in the world with that eighty pounds, you know, because you're not you're not paying bills. So instead it's like, yeah, I'll go to in fact Nando's I don't think was even around at that sort of time. But it's like, yeah, I'm gonna go to Pizza Hut. Mm. <laughs> I'm gonna go to Boots, get this meal deal. Mm, look at me, king of it all. <laughs> you uh, would have a, had the all you can eat ice cream, I imagine. It's yeah, a, a common listen, theme in the book about I, yeah, eating a hell I, of a lot all I, the time. I eat, I eat a lot of food. I eat a lot of food. I, yeah, and to be fair, I'm a grazer as well. I'm not really a meals guy. Right. So I'm more dangerous. Every day is tapas. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm very dangerous going. between meals. Yeah, I can get after it. Um, but yeah, the £80 a week and stuff, it, it sort of humbles you because you're doing it. You're playing the sport, but it's not for the money because the money's not changing your life. But it does allow you freedom to be able to do certain things. Like I remember on a Friday would be the day we'd go and get expenses. And I, myself and um, the twins, Nathan and Jonathan Delaye, who I came through the academy with, we used to get bus passes. So when they'd like give us the money back for a bus pass as an expense, he felt like I was the richest man. He has a little £10 extra. Also forgetting that I need that money to go and pay for the next bus pass for the next week. But <laughs> culturally, it was, it, was, um, it, it was brilliant. And obviously money is very much involved in football now. And to be fair, I've got a question for you guys, if that's all right. Please. So relatively speaking now, when within football do you think you've made it? Because the old guard would say when you've played like, three, four seasons, 100 games or something like that, yeah. But in this day and age, you can make a lot of money and never play for a first team. Yeah. And when you think about it as a professional, in my opinion, like I'm sorry, I might be leading you down and answer it. Yeah. But you're a professional instead of an amateur. And for lots of people who play the game, they come from nothing. Yeah. So realistically, when have you made it? As from a fan's perspective? Or yes. Remember, uh, or both possibly, yeah. yeah. Fans or from, or from within. For me, because football seems so removed from what my life is like, essentially the moment a player gets onto a Premier League pitch, I think, well, he's going to have a career, even yeah. if necessarily not yeah. in the Premier League. That's, yeah. that, this is going to be his career for uh-huh. you know, a significant portion of his life. So it feels pretty instant to me, but I imagine there are a lot of players that do just drop off that you, you forget about them and you never hear of them, right? So from a fan's point of view then, if a player gets to 21 and they never play for the first team and they quit, but 
financially secure for the next 20 years of their life Bloody and they've moved hell. their family out of a situation, have they made it or have they failed? Why did they quit? I they've they've the succeeded. I mean, they've succeeded in in an aspect of life, but you, I don't think. Well, can that, you really say they've succeeded as a footballer? Uh, if you take in th- it, but this thing, this thing, thing about football, I think, it, like especially in the UK, not necessarily as much in the USA because it's more of a middle class sport overall. Is that the people who play it? The vast majority have nothing and come from nothing. Mm. So when football changes your life, does it matter that you've not got the games written down on Wikipedia to say that you know this is how your life changed? No, absolutely not. Stuff so it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of those kids and stuff will get like real abuse from it. People saying oh, you never made it, you're just doing this, you're doing that. But the reality of the situation is most people do not make it in and oh, have a career. Course, most people yeah. do not do it. Well, that feeds into the whole question that we often talk about as well, which is people getting very upset about footballers not, you know, being obsessed with the yeah. game, right? You know, the, the common example is the situation with Gareth Bale yeah. at Real Madrid, for yeah. example. Ben I mean, White's had it recently as well because he dared to mention he doesn't always watch Match of the Day. Oh, shambles. Yeah. Uh, how dare he? Outrageous, isn't it? <laughs> I, to be fair, I stopped watching Match of the Day about 11 years ago. And then I had to, <laughs> then I had to eat my words as I was then sitting on the Match of the Day stage about to come on and the music started playing. I was like, oh my God. It is uh, exciting. Yeah, it was really good. Okay, just like, I've made it. I've, I've literally made it. I'm on Match of the Day. So that's the answer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah you, once you become a pundit on Match of the Day, then you've made it. Bizarre, Come yeah. through unscathed. That's it, yeah. That, that's the that's the bar, yeah, for sure. That, that, that must be weird sitting on that set because we've all seen the pictures of Match of the Day without the graphics on it, right? Yeah. Does it must feel odd? Yeah, it's, it's very, very odd. And um, so, obviously, the show depends on the people that are on it, you know, because they do have opinions and stuff and everybody's got opinions. But certain opinions, I think, are more entertaining and are more like thoughtful than others. It still makes for a good show, regardless, you know, depending on whoever's tuned in. But we, this was for a match of the day too, and we had to get in for two o'clock, and the show was going live at eleven. So you're watching the games for the first, you watched the first two games, and you spent about four hours just doing analysis and preparing stuff. That is quite tough. So that was your first. It's, that was my very first gig, and yeah. I thought, oh that was my your first God. gig. That was, my, that was my first match of the day gig. First, okay, sorry, um, not your first telly. No, 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 yeah, no, no, yeah. No, no. Jesus <laughs> Christ, that would have been insane. No, I'm regular to this, <laughs> but um, that was my first match of the day gig, and I didn't, and I knew that you know they watch games, but I didn't think it was going to be that long because that the last game finished at like six, and we yeah. weren't on for five hours. Energy wise, that's hard as well. Yeah, so then. I'm sitting down on the stage and so everyone says, oh, good luck. And I look next to me, there's like Mark Chapman and next to him is Ian Wright. I'm like, how did I end up here? It's like I've been teleported or something. <laughs> but then the music plays. I'm like, oh my God, like this is real. Because I've been on Football Folks a few times. I'm yeah, like, This is real, this is real. And then Chappers says, oh, Chappers, yeah, if you heard me, I said Chappers. God, unbelievable. <laughs> I still call him Mark. I yeah. don't feel like I've got to that level he, yet. And then next thing he says, oh yeah, so welcome to match of the day two. And now here we go straight into the first game, Spurs. And I'm sitting there for eight minutes thinking, I'm watching these highlights again. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, I forgot I forgot this is what the show's like. <laughs> we don't really bash through this, do we? And yeah, for an hour, we then talk about the game after talking about the game for the last six hours. But, yeah. Did you find it natural? Were you, were you all right? Just kind I, of... As, as you've probably gathered, like I don't mind talking, like, so it's, it's it's all good, and I, I really enjoy football. But I enjoy football for what it is. So there's stuff that I can add, in the same way other people can add, which maybe people don't think about all the time. So yeah. I think as a pundit, and I hate, I actually hate the word pundit. I want to drift towards being called a broadcaster. I hate the word podcast. Some of this stuff yeah. just sticks in your head, doesn't it? Yeah, like I don't. I, I, but when I think pundit, what? I hate the word podcast <laughs> because it relates to iPods, right? They're, they're yeah, old. I had, throughout my life, I have had to explain to people what the what word podcast, podcast means is. so yeah, much. Right. Yeah, I, I um, 
You've caught you've caught me with that actually. But yeah, I don't like the word pundit because when you think about like a football pundit, I picture a certain type of person. Yeah. But the stuff I'm saying doesn't feel like it belongs in that sort of realm, but that's still exactly and I mean, you know, it's like I think because what you're talking about back to the back to knowing about what the kit men do, back to yeah. having a sense of how things fit into the ecosystem. I think sometimes, especially modern modern football, like even after when you've been playing, mm. it's so organised as you say for people to not really know anything about the world yeah. around them. You can you can, you can sort of go through a day and have everything done for you, but not know how it's done. But then that's not really taking part in what a football club is. Because the more people you know, the sort of better your experience, I feel, because there are lots of good people behind the scenes. People might argue that you, you know, just focus on your football. and uh... Yeah, but there's some people argue about anything. Let's be clear about that. And with in regards to that, it's the same thing where when I was, at, when I was doing my A-levels, they said, oh, have you found time to do that and then still play football at the same time? Well, I'd finished training at one and I got to bed at like 10, 11. So it seems like there's a bit of time to maybe do something else, perhaps. Yeah, great. <laughs> But I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just being cynical. Does that sort of stuff bleed into dressing rooms then? Because we all see, you know, fans with mad opinions about about exactly that sort of thing. Mm. Like, oh, just get your head down, just focus on your football. Like yeah. you see, you know, if if a club tweets that they've got a new shirt out, that all of the all of the comments will be like, oh, what, do, stop focusing on fashion. Think about football as if those things are linked up. Does does that stuff affect dressing rooms? Or, or yeah. you... Jim's an Arsenal fan. Can you tell everybody? Yeah, he's clearly <laughs> rattled by something. Yeah, I've, I've gathered this year. Yeah. Um, you can, as a, as a player, you if there's something big going on, you'll know about it because you'll be asked about it by journalists and alike. So you can't just escape things. Mm. And, you, and so if you know you're going to be asked about it, you've got to look into it to know what answer you want to give. Because that's the whole beauty of football. Say as many words as possible while saying nothing. Yeah, you know that'll keep you safe. Um, so it, it does it does bleed into things. But I think within football, there are some people who like play football who get it, and other people who play football who are essentially just the same as like a fan who has no real understanding of how it all works anyway. Because some of the takes and stuff that I've heard across the years about people and their experiences within football, I'm like, what are we talking about? Here? You know what I mean? Like it's never been a thing. Like there was a guy. Uh, this was last year, I think, or a year and a half ago, while the fans weren't still in stadiums. And it was when Van der Beek was playing in the game for Man United. And he said that within the game, you can see the United players, they're seeing Van der Beek, but they're not playing him the ball because they don't really trust him yet. Mm. And he said, but whereas when Bruno Fernandes is on the uh, is on the field, you know, people are taking extra touches to try and find where he is to give him the ball at all times. And I thought back through 16 years as a pro, like the prior 10 years or whatever in the academy, and at no point have I taken extra touches whilst desperately searching for somebody on the field because they're the only person that can save the day. Like if somebody's in the right spot, it doesn't matter who it is, it's the right spot to play the ball. But they said that and said that like on a microphone (laughs) and people heard it. And then it sort of just perpetuated this belief that Van der Beek was struggling at, at United. And you just think, come on, like mm. that's never been a thing. And there's no way you played the game that way, or is there? Yet still, that's then the perception that fans will have because this person that played football said it. These things are massive in football, aren't they? You, you talk in the book about um, how it's really common among new managers to say that the t- squad isn't fit enough. Yes. It's like these these things get <laughs> yes. parroted and parroted. It's yes. like people people don't seem to have their own thoughts. It's just like there is, is a, an there is an ex- accepted about. thought for this situation. So I, a proper football man, will yeah. use that thought because I understand football. Yeah. And that sounds this like is an extension. Is the whole thing of the danger of saying anything, of people, of people using lots of words to say not a lot of stuff because as you know because footballers are so famous like Mm. every time they say 
anything, it can be used as a headline yeah. or anything mildly interesting. Mm. But we, you know, we were so grateful talking about today, talking about the preview for the Champions League final that Salah had actually said, yes, it's a revenge mission rather than when, yeah, when yeah, asked who yeah. he preferred to place in the yeah. final rather than being like, well, they're two great teams yeah. and I'll do my it's, best, whatever happens. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it, is, it is frustrating, but the danger of it is like, as a player, you trust certain people more than others. But the, and the people you trust more than others are the ones where you know what you say will hit print or be out there and put into the context you wanted it to be. Yeah. Whereas for the people, they're so thirsty for something controversial that you could say something that's mild and they'll turn it into something else. I'm with you. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you always end up being very reluctant. As a consequence, you literally say nothing. Like you've got a press officer over your shoulder looking at you and somebody asks you a question which might be leading. You go say, well, you know, it's uh, we're going to try really hard. You know, we were unlucky last week, but this week we've got the motivation and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll try our best and hopefully that'll be enough. You might have heard that once or twice before. <laughs> hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You talk a lot about various managers that you've worked under mm. in the book, and it's it's great from the perspective from the fan perspective because it's it's interesting to hear. In some cases, you some of the anecdotes really back up exactly what you imagine it yeah. might be like to play under, let's say, Harry yes. Redknapp. Um, how did you feel about doing that? And well, um, so I've had to think about this a lot recently on this sort of mini press run that I'm on. Yeah. And having to say it to different audiences, because like it, when you when you ask when you get the questions asked, you literally have to think about this as a concept. And for me, there are people in the book who will be unhappy about things that have been said in the book, and there'll be people who will read the book or get like an excerpt from it who will say, "Well, why didn't you say this back then?" And what I'd say to those people is that when you're part of an organization and you have a goal of being successful, you don't want to rock the boat at any point. Mm. So what you see on a day-to-day -day basis, just because it's not good, doesn't mean that you have to declare it's not good all the time because all that does is create a crisis. And I was never somebody who'd create a crisis. Like I said earlier, I've had managers who give you tactics which you know won't work, but come Saturday, I'll still go and do them. And then I'll be criticised afterwards. But the fact is, I'm doing what I'm being told to do because this is my place within the organisation. But the specific example of Redknapp was one where you, there's a particular example in the yeah. book, right, where he sets up the team in order basically to prove a point. Yeah. is Harry, so Harry Redknapp, like, by the time he was leaving QPI, he made a lot more sense. 
But when he first came in, it was bizarre because everyone was saying how good he was. But he just wasn't showing any of that when we when he first came in. I don't know if it's that realisation of how bad we were as a team at the moment, at that particular moment and the setup and infrastructure that we had. But there was no spark. He didn't bring a spark. And training, like, it was miserable. Those were some of the toughest stretches. When you're losing games week in, week out, and you've not got somebody to, like, bounce off, there's not really a ton of enthusiasm because he relies a lot on his, like, coaches and stuff. And they were fine, they were fine you know, Kevin Bond, Joe Jordan and the like. Uh, but Harry wasn't this guy that I thought he was going to be. As I say, by the end, when he, once he settled in, I got it. But mm-hmm. for some of that, I didn't. And it's, it's weird then because I, we talk about saying nothing in the press. If somebody believes somebody's good, then whenever you, somebody gets a question, like I'm, I'm doing a press interview and someone says, oh, so it must be great to have Harry Redknapp here, you know. He's, he's done so well across the years. It must be fantastic to have such a big coup to have somebody like him here. Well, I'm going to say yes or I'm going to say no. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And I, 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 said no. I, I, can't, yeah. I literally cannot say no. Like the answer's in the question, but it's not the right answer, but it's the answer. So you just you just carry on along with this sort of things and you're hoping for more. And like I say, in time he got it. But as I was saying earlier, like with these managers and with some of the players and people that I mentioned, that's a reali- realistic depiction of those times. And I don't know if they're the same times now. And I'm not trying to convince people to think otherwise, but I'll tell you about what happened and how it affected myself and the group. And within that group, there are tons of people who won't be writing in saying that it's a lie or it's not true, but they'll be very, very happy that something's been said because it's a more realistic depiction of the time. I suppose that a fantastical view that say sometimes people are from the outside. It sounds like that time in particular was pretty mad. There's a, there's a story um, about some warm weather training in Dubai yeah. where a couple of players <laughs> overdid it the night before and were still drunk yeah. in training the next day. Yeah. Now that's that. So Harry Redknapp, is, he's big on people not drinking. Like He's very, very big on it. I don't know the history behind it, but he's very big on it. So it's no, it's no problem for me. Like It's fine. I just, I'm in Dubai to train and I don't drink anyway. So it's stress-free. I'm just doing whatever I do, trying to just be as respectful as possible. What time's curfew? Bang. No issues, whatever in typical me fashion so then that day there were so many people who'd gone out the night before and to be fair the night before that as well that this training session was arguably one of the worst I've ever seen like in the history of football pro amateur level everything but again I was more embarrassed by it but what can I do about it that's the tone that they'd set I'm not going to tell another grown man like they can't go out the night before if they choose to do that like that's one thing that Harry what, think what got wrong what can you do anyway that's the thing that Harry got wrong like telling people with children and freedom and stuff that they're not allowed to leave the hotel room past 10 o'clock whilst they're in Dubai, yet still a month later the players might be in Dubai on holidays leaving the place past 10 o'clock, you know, very right. So it was a bad training session and he was frustrated. But then, like, don't take out on me. Like, I was actively trying to be a good professional. So then you take out on me, what's the point? If you've got an issue, take out with the people who are seeing, like, four footballs around their head. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> literally don't know which one to kick. And I'm here just trying to do the drills that I'm being told to do. Like, what, what, what are we doing here? We need to get back to Manchester City. We've well, actually, or in fact, the day. Perhaps we should talk about the the Aguero yeah. day because, of course, you by that point, you, what th- four months earlier, you'd left you'd left the club and you were also on the pitch because mm. you were playing for QPR and you were staying up. As it turned out, yeah. What so, what a ridiculous moment! Ah, stupid moment to be honest. It was so. I am a Manchester City supporter. Um, really into their latest title win really into it very much enjoyed it all that type of stuff okay so Liverpool fans is that what's going on no no I'm Tottenham no. but okay. um, See, just... yeah you relative success <laughs> Oh, what a burn. <laughs> I know it's, it's true, though. It's true. That's um, the thing it's is. Just the, the, Did you not win the Champions League? 
Oh yeah, I'm very. I'm actually very happy. I'm so, particularly so, so in, con- yeah. in context of sickness. Relative gym. sadness. Yeah, <laughs> but, the, but the way you were, that Manchester City vibe is one that I think other pe- other fans probably struggle with a bit. Yeah, honestly, like I, so I'm a Man City supporter, but yeah. whenever every time I talk about football, try and be fair. If they lose, I won't say that City were bad or whatever. I'll talk about what the opposition did as well because mm. I'm actually watching a game of football. Like that's my whole thing. I watch football. Lots of people don't do that. You know, like if, if United lose a game, it's the Inquisition afterwards, isn't it? You know what I mean? It doesn't matter what Brighton did to beat them yeah. 4-0. It's like, oh, what did United do wrong today? I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. Like, I'm happy they won it because I've like I've been in the academy. I was at the academy when I was 10. Like, I felt it. So I'm happy that's the case. But in going back to that game, so I hate, at the time, Some I'll give you some very significant truths here. I hated Roberto Mancini, like with a passion at that point, because he, he affected my life and the lives of lots of other people in a negative way. So I didn't have my full connection to the club at that point because he was at the for, he was at the forefront of it. And something I found when I was a player there as well was he was at times he was terrible to all the players, but then he was brilliant in the media with his scarf, his flicking of the hair, his charm, his charisma. Delivered none of that to the training ground or to the dressing room. Oh, I don't like that. You know what I mean? Like, but yeah. again, you're trapped because you the be, media you love gotta him. Be a set, yeah, yeah. But you should me- at least be at least consistent. But maybe what? Well, whenever you go out in the media, it's a chance to sort of create your brand. Whenever you're with your team, when with the team, then it's just about uh, just like putting your authority out there, essentially. So I didn't like him. All the players in the team were really liked, but I was frustrated because I'd basically been told to leave, and I was treated like a villain for the first six months of the season there. So going to play in that game, having everything on the line for QPR, because I I was desperate to stay in the Premier League. I didn't leave to go and play in the Championship. I had um, rent on a house in Richmond, and I managed to get a six-month thing because if they went down, there was a chance that I might be leaving again. And I wanted to extend it because I really enjoyed living in Richmond. Um, so like, there's a lot going on here. I want to stay, I want to play, I want to settle down and not have this thing whereby do I stay, do I go? So going into the game, I'm obsessed. We've, we've got to stay up. We've got to stay up. And their league title situation, like it would have been great if they won it, but it's not going to be at my expense. And I wasn't going to play the game like that at all. So I went into the game. Because people say you took the the throw in quickly. I didn't take it quickly. That's just like, I'm going to come out of my shell here just for a moment. Please. Okay. Some of the things I've heard over the last few weeks are some of the most stupid things I've ever heard in the history of the world. Okay. Like... Someone saying that, you know, the game is investigated. Stupid. (laughs) How about you watch the game back and watch how it ended and ask yourself if seven or eight bodies are on the floor with their hands on their heads, nearly brought to tears as a goal goes in. Are they tears of happiness (laughs) or are they tears of sadness? Exactly. So, yeah, I it was a weird feeling because like I, I took the throw in. And I remember Jay Boffro was down the line. I thought, you know, go there. Everything's great. Time will, time will expire. Next thing, like within football, you know when something's your fault. And I thought, well, I've lost the ball there. So if they score, this is going to be my fault. And I'm going to relegate my team Oof. in front of my old fans, old teammates, and that manager who I detested on the sideline. So I was in hell. It's worse than an anxiety dream. Isn't oh, it? Like, it's, like, I, I couldn't have. I couldn't. Details. I could not have created have a worse situation. Naked, and that would yeah. have been the only I, way. Yeah, literally. Yeah, or scored an own goal in the last second and taken us down. That's the yeah. only way it gets worse. But this, I thought this is my fault. So I'm at the lowest of the lows, then the highest of the highs as the sea was staying up. But then only recently, um, whilst doing uh, an interview about that game, somebody said, "Oh, when did the club knew that that they were staying up?" And I said, "It was after the third goal went in." 
They showed me a video. And as I had the ball in my hands to take the throw in, five yards behind me, the bench are going wild. <gasps> and I was none the wiser. Wow. <sighs> none the wiser. And I, said, and I said to a few of my friends when I'm talking about it, well, you talk about sliding doors. If I knew that we were up at that point, I would have taken a throw in. But I would have been high-fiving people on the bench, shouting the message onto the field. And then the time just disappears. Yeah. But I definitely would have done it the exact same way that I did, which then led to them scoring a goal. Whoa. Conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> that needs to be looked at. Yeah, of course, yeah. Just look at it. Just look, The game is readily available. If anyone wants to watch it, you can see exactly it panned out the way that it did. So you, you feel okay about being, in terms of being a City fan, which you are to this day, you would say? You would say yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, fully in. You don't... Not, uh, well, there's a difference. For me, there's a difference between a fan and a supporter. Okay. I think a fanatic is like bonkers can only see something blue. For sure. Like a fanatic. I didn't say fan, I said fanatic. Got it. But okay. I'm a supporter because I want them to do well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I root for the people I know who are still working there. And if things don't go well, I can be rational and try and figure out why that is and not say it's a conspiracy against the club. Yeah, I wish everybody was that. Yeah, um, it's not good, yeah. But of course, you, at the very start of our conversation, you mentioned the situation with your mum, the terrible mm. situation where someone, more than one person at the club was effectively mocking yeah. a woman who was who was dying of cancer, who is yeah. who is your mother. Yeah. Uh, how, how does that not s- impact on how you view the club even today? Um, it does impact it, but it it's like, it's an appreciation of the fact that a club is made up of many people mm. and what one person does, does does not define what other people do, if you know what I mean, or how you perceive other people. And some of the people who are involved in that, um, to name them Gary Cook and Brian Marwood, like, I don't like Gary Cook. You know what I mean? I've got no interest in seeing Gary Cook again for the rest of my life. Mm. Uh, Brian Marwood, I have seen him, but as I say in the book, I'm frustrated because I didn't, the way that I reacted then means that today I have to react in a different, I have to see him and treat him in a different manner because I didn't go all in back then. So I can't go all in now because mm. it just feels, that just doesn't, it's not the way like we deal with situations as adults, but I don't respect the decision he made back then and I'll never forget it. So every time I see him, it's not a case of like, he could say sorry to me, but I'll never move on from it because I know how bad that truly is to, to talk to somebody like that. I never in a million years would I do anything to that extent at all. Like, it's awful. So those are two people within the organisation, but then in the same breath, I know people who've been there for longer than those two. Like a guy called Danny Wilson, who I think is a managing director now, he was there at Main Road, and now he's a managing director of Man City. I know Claire Marsden, who's been in charge, he's basically been the club secretary for like 20 plus years. And when I see those people, it takes me back to when I was there and some really happy memories sharing time with them. So, like, Man City aren't just Brian Marwood and Gary Cook. It's an amalgamation of lots of different people. It's a feeling even amongst fans, you know, people who've played for the club because a lot of players who play for the club keep coming back. Mm. They come back to work in different roles. So, you know, it's more than that. It's the, as is the case with, like, fans all around the country. Like, you support your club and when you do and you're a big part of it, it's a feeling you know, you can't explain mm. it, but it's something which you feel a part of. It's not a choice, is it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a compulsion almost. Mm. And I thought I was quite calm. And, you know, I thought I'm fair as a as a pundit. <laughs> as a pundit, I'm fair because it's not just all about City for me. I end up being asked a lot of questions about City, but I'm fair. But when I was watching the game on the Sunday, oh, I was all in. I was all in. And I realized, yeah, I am fair, but I definitely want a particular outcome. Let's just say that. 
Yeah, fair enough. And you work with City as well now. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I'm a trustee for the charity, which I, which helped me when in the early 90s because I went to a couple of soccer schools and I do some stuff for like the some of the like documentaries and their match day live things. But again, like that's not my core because I like being out in the open forum discussing everything about football mm. as opposed to just having to solely just dive into one one particular colour. So that maybe answers my next question, which is because of the way, because of your analytical brain and the way that you analyse certain mistakes or ways mm. of managing that you've encountered over the course of your career, it seems like you've got a pretty good grasp of what you think works and doesn't work. Yeah, but I'm also like, if I, if I don't if I don't know something, I'll just say I don't know. But I look into it. Like mm. I love research and find out more about things. I love the idea of gaining different perspectives and sort of accepting the fact that like I don't have the final answer on anything. I can give you my opinion on it based and I can exp- like the beauty of some of the stuff that I do, like this, sorry to say it, podcast and stuff, but <laughs> it's a chance to have an opinion and be able to explain it. Yeah. So then people can disagree, which is fine, but they'll understand where you're coming from. You know, and they're forced, they can wonder to themselves, would they think the same way that you do based on how you see things? So with the sort of analytical side of things, like I understand there's more to it. It's very quick, especially within football and the tribalism to think it's one thing. Bang, this is it. Oh, stupid. That's that. But I say, is it? You know, and the, the sometimes some of my friends will tell you about this. Like I will play devil's advocate over something I don't even believe in myself. And it really frustrates them. But it's just showing that there's more to any particular situation. You know, it's never as simple as we make out. And I've learned that uh, the hard way across the years. Yeah, is it Joe Hart who's like, you'll never win a fight again? <laughs> no, yeah, I've, yeah. Got, I've got to come back to most things. Yeah. And if I don't, I'll say I don't know. But next time you see me, I definitely will know more to say about it. So why didn't you want to become a manager? Um, because it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous idea to work extra hours for less pay for more stress and more criticism. <laughs> but, you know, if that's what you want to do going forward, then go wild, yeah. But... But you said you want the best for the for the t- for certain teams. Like when you're talking about QPR, yeah. you're talking about yeah. the captain there. Yeah. You like the collective. You like the way football clubs yeah. work. You want things to be improved. You want to yeah. do unusual, maybe have a slightly like different angle on things. Yeah, you've got the intelligence. Well, but the, what I say is like so what? That's not, the thing. Just not for it's not it's for not me. For you, yeah. It's just not. It's just not for me. Like I want to make a difference, and I think I can still make a difference within football clubs, but not in necessarily in that role. Like the stress that say everyone goes through supports a team when they go and watch them on a weekend. That sense of helplessness. For sixteen years, I didn't have that because I was playing. So then, to all of a sudden, like I've seen like managers come in on a Monday and have to say this is the plan for the game on Saturday and work at it every single day, and then I've seen on a Saturday within five minutes nobody's doing it anymore. But you've, as a manager, invested time. Yeah, but if you're a really good manager, you can you can a, use your charisma, you can so use your... So all really good managers are, are successful? No, obviously. So that's the point. I know, but let's imagine you were going to be a really good okay. manager. Yeah. Using your charisma and your ability to analyse things and hard work and blah, blah, blah. Doesn't mean, literally doesn't mean success because you need the buy-in from the right players and not every club. Yeah, but that's part of it. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So what, basically what you're saying is, you know, for the way that I think, put me in Man City and it'll be successful. No, Do you reckon I'm that'd be my first job? I'm absolutely not saying that. Okay. I'm saying, so where okay, do you so begin? there's diligence. Yeah. So where do you begin? You'd need, you'd need, sure. Well, it's clear that you aren't going to be a manager because it takes a hell of a lot of like graft and all yeah. this other crap and oh, dealing with dickheads. <laughs> No. But it's I'm sure that- everyone just heard that. <laughs> Do, sorry, is this headphone not working? <laughs> it's clear. <laughs> okay. That if you wanted to graph towards something like that yeah, I then could, you I could would do it, do it. But you I would work your way up through the leagues I love, but that is what it does to Yeah, me. I love the fact that say I can be down here today 
someone will ask me, can I do something? I say yes or no. But when I, when I say yes or no, it's not necessarily because I'm busy. It might be because I just don't want to do it. And I'd rather do nothing or have space to do whatever I want to do on that particular day. Fine. As a manager, it's not that. Like you're in the, the way that football management works, the players basically assume that you live at the training ground because mm. they're always there when they arrive and they're always there when they leave. And they're just everywhere, you know what I mean? So I don't want to lose that time. I spent 16 years traveling around and I got to a point where I loved days off to spend mm. with my wife, with my kids and so on. So why would I then choose the one job within football, which takes even more time than what was there beforehand? So based on, on all of this, looking no, back over happen. it, do you feel a little bit more sympathy, for example, for Stuart Pearce and some of these other people nah. who you felt were kind of dickheads? Nah. No, because they made the choice. Right. And also for some of them, some of the things which they did, they didn't have to do because it's not like page one of like the coach's manual. Some of the weird things are like, it's just personality based. Like as a manager, in some ways, I've seen managers have good spells at clubs through just being a nice person because the players that you have can play football. So if you give them an environment which they want to be in and something they want to be a part of, like it might not last for a long time if they're not good enough. But little things make a difference. Like you'll see with some teams, there are times when a team will be getting hit on the break and everyone's sprinting back. And other times where it's one or two people. Ask yourself, why would sometimes one or two people come back, but other times everyone would? Because when it's everyone, everyone's buying into each other, the setup, the club, and they win together, they lose together, they score together, they defend together. Mm. And you get that from having a manager who sets the tone whereby this is about togetherness, as opposed to somebody saying, well, that's not my job. You know, as a football club, everything's your job. So if we may change lanes very slightly here, um, you talk towards the end of the book in particular, and you've mentioned it a bit today as well, about the kind of the attitudes in dressing rooms not always being the most inclusive mm. kind of places. Uh, recently, recently, we saw Jake Daniels become the first openly gay yeah. professional player in the UK. I'm really interested to get your view on this from within inside the game, because obviously you've been very honest about what it's like just being a being a footballer and what that life is like. I've I've heard that within football, and I'm not not asking you to name names or anything or, or speculate on anything here, but I've heard that um, within Premier League clubs. Uh, and, and just in football in general, it's known in, in certain dressing rooms that some players are gay and no one cares about it. And within football itself, that it's actually a lot more progressive than we've led to believe. We've been led to believe. So there, you say you heard that from footballers. I've I've heard it. I've heard it from people who way down the way down the grapevine, not directly from a player. Yeah. Um, so I can only talk about my experiences yeah. within this. But then also football, like it's got a lot of people in it. But then. A, Everything's very close as well. If mm -hmm. something happens, like everyone knows it, like those WhatsApp groups and stuff, if there's a picture out of someone today, this morning, it's every player in the football pyramid seen it or yeah. whatever. So what I would say in regards to that is that with the places that I've been, there's nobody that's come out and openly said that they're gay. And football isn't that progressive. It might be a fraction more progressive than, say, overall society. Mm. But it's not that progressive because I know people who went in dressing rooms like they'll be saying sexist stuff homophobic stuff yeah. racist they'll be saying racist things and the reason it's okay within football in their minds because it goes under the umbrella of banter like the word banter if it could have it removed like, i think that'd be the best thing possible because it covers up for a lot of nonsense and like i know certain people i've played with where if somebody came out and said they were gay 
on the outside, they might say something to support them or say nothing. But on the inside, they'll stop going in showers with them mm. and they'll start acting differently because of them. That's that's what goes on. So it's easy to say how you'd be, but the reality of the situation is you've not had to address that yet within mm -hmm. your space. And I think if you did, you would then find the reality of football kicks in because like the people who play football are just regular members of society, but they just get paid more and do a different sort of job itself. So I wouldn't buy into that too much, but I, I hope that he is supported. But then I also hope that people don't try and treat him differently because he's yeah. come out and say that. Like you should champion him for being able to have the strength to come out and say it. But now what's next? Can other people come forward? Or is it going to be a case now that, you know, before you know it, he's just sitting in the corner of the canteen by himself. And everyone says, oh, it's fine. Yeah, I'm glad that he's come out. Mm. But yeah, let me know when he's finished in the shower, if you know what I mean. I guess that's why it's important then is that it becomes gradually more normal over time. But that will yeah. take a hell of a lot of sacrifices from gay players in the game, which yeah. it doesn't seem there's, right. There's a lot. There's, uh, we've spoken about this a little bit on the show. Like, There's a lot of pressure to just conform within yeah. football. And being a homosexual is not conforming within football because it's extra macho. You talk about like your sexual achievements and the women that you know and the people oh let's look on Instagram and see these Instagram models I think I could DM or this that all that nonsense yeah like it's complete nonsense but that's what comes with young young rich groups of men who have money and have power and standing that's the way that they behave overall not to say everybody is like that but at, at its core that's what it is so you can see why some people wouldn't feel comfortable coming out in that sense because mm. it is extra macho but then as well from the other side of that like the irony behind football is that sex is inferred because we don't arrive at the training ground and just have sex just in the changing room and say, oh, this guy's straight. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you don't, see, there's nothing, there's lit, but right. you just, but some people are very comfortable with us because they just assume that they're straight. Right. Mm. So then I wonder to myself sometimes, and this is like a much later point in the grand, in this journey of, you know, people of football being really inclusive. Like, if somebody came out, if, if three quarters of my squad that I was with at QPR or something came out and said that they were gay, but oh, that's cool. Because again, like someone's sex is inferred, but my relationship with them was never based on anything sexual anyway. Yeah. Like this is my friend. Yeah. Nothing's yeah. different. Yeah. Literally, you can tell me that. It's like, oh, I'm happy that you feel comfortable to come out, but are we going to go and train now or what? Because we're like, we need to get out in the next minute, otherwise we'll get fined. You well, know the reason I mean? it would matter would be if you constantly made homophobic yeah, jokes exactly. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Exactly. and maybe that comes back that's, to that, what's more normal in the dressing room that's, that is more normal in the dressing room and I think as well within football people know when things aren't right but not everybody feels they've got the leverage to be able to come out and say it like if your manager says something which you know is not right who do you speak to because if you try and speak to him and say it's not right if the manager's the wrong type you're never going to play and playing is the, is the feels like it's the most important thing and like I get it I get it for some people because playing means they live in the house that they live. They keep their families secure and they can actually like try and plan for more than just like the next week because they have a stable situation. And that sort of fear of instability is what I think essentially won't drive change because most people fear sort of rocking the boat because they don't have enough power to be able to address things that need to be addressed. Do you see the um, progress and the taking the knee and the power that Black Lives Matter movement has had as being in keeping with that because such a proportion of players are now able to talk about things and there are so many yeah, black players in the game? They are. Or they, do you see it as almost being a part of the fact that like this is now the corporate thing that we do? It is a bit corporate. 
it, ha- it has become a bit corporate, but then I don't necessarily hate that fact because, you know, sometimes change needs to be driven by the big wigs, by the big spots, because otherwise the people below won't, won't do anything of the sort. Mm. So um, I'm glad that they do it. I'm glad that it's being discussed. And, you know, there are certain companies who are doing more than that now, but the visibility is the first key stage. But the visibility at times is the easiest thing to do. But I think for some, pl- but that's as an organisation because it doesn't have a face to it. But for some of the players who have a face to what they're potentially trying to stand behind, they're always supporting until the point where they reach pushback. And then when they get pushed back, it's a case of, do you have enough empathy to continue pushing through? Because that's when it will be more black people that will continue to take a knee or to be saying it's an issue, as opposed to some people who said, you know, maybe it's easier if we all stand together and put our arms around each other. Maybe it's easier if we just put something on the shirt. You know, the easy thing isn't necessarily going to be the thing that brings more change, to be honest. Mm. Yeah. Hitting you with some deep points here, aren't I? You never expected that, this, did you? I did expect yeah, we it, did, actually. Yeah. No. Oh, we I'm in the right place, so I didn't take a wrong turn. That is exactly what we expected. Having, I think, having read the book, yeah. yeah. Is there anything else you you feel like you'd want to talk about before we break um, So I'm not somebody who was obsessed about writing a book or telling their own story because I've kept it ridiculously private throughout my entire life. You know, even in the realm of social media, my account's private. And then to add even more irony to that, the people that follow me, they don't really get many pictures very often. So that's how private I am. Just like check. I, actually, I actually live in the real world. Yeah. That's the does, thing. Does Rebecca Vardy follow your account? Or? <laughs> well, if she did, she wouldn't be getting much anyway. <laughs> I think according to my according to my Instagram feed, I only have two children, yet my son is turning four in the next month. So, you know, that, that's where I'm at. Um, but yeah, I, so the book itself, it, it serves a purpose and I'm very happy to be very open and honest about it. And there'll be people who won't like it, but don't, click along for like a one line or a highlight because it'll get thrown out of context. Because one thing I believe I am is fair. And for all those people who maybe I didn't like within my career, I'll still tell you about how it affected my life in a positive and negative manner and the things which I learned from it. And I think that's key because it's not a book whereby I'm trying to air out all my grievances. It's a book where I'm telling my story about how I became to came to be who I am today. And I believe I'm a good person and I believe I was a good teammate. And as a consequence, like the stories which I tell, you know, they're being told for a reason. So I'm proud to have, to have been published and proud to see my face like in bookstores and stuff. And also the people who will buy it, you know, I think, I think they'll get it. I think they'll get it. I think they'll understand it. But some of the people who won't buy it, but then read one chapter about what I said about Harry Redknapp. I think you're missing the point completely. <laughs> but you might enjoy it. <laughs> You'll definitely enjoy it, but you're missing the point. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. And the sense that what was special about this life story from football was how honest you were able to be about not just about the people, but about the obstacles that you encountered and how they affected you. Some and some things that you it wasn't a case of you saying, Oh, look, I've I've managed to overcome everything and I and yeah. I've and I've solved it and this is what I've achieved. It was about saying, Yeah, some of these things I would have done it differently. I, yep. I I did hope it would go differently. And I think that's a real, real strength. Um, and that meant for me anyway, that despite the fact that you're talking about a world that's completely inaccessible for almost the entire population it felt accessible and and relatable yeah. um, because of the way that you were talking about yeah, it so that. congratulations mission accomplished yeah yeah and thank you so much for for coming in to join us no really really enjoyed chatting to you Nenem. it's a pleasure now i just need to catch my train back up north all right
straight, straight off. Straight off, yeah. Anything for the football ramble. <laughs> what a legend. Um, pick up, everybody, pick up Nedham's book, Kicking Back at your favourite bookshop. Or if you want to buy online, why not use hive.co.uk? Every order placed there supports local independent bookshops. Get in touch with us with what you'd like to read next. I'm on at KBL Mason. Jim is. I'm at Jim Campbell TFR. Or you can tweet us at Football Ramble. And we'll be back next month with another great book from the world of football. Football Ramble Presents is a Stack Production and part of the Acast Creator Network. 